2 Samuel and chapter 11, and we are going to read the whole chapter through. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messages and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I therefore go to my house to eat, to drink, and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech and the son of Drubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say to him, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had said to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back 
to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We're going to look at this uh, passage. If anyone ever says to you that uh, the Bible isn't up to date, it's not relevant, don't believe it, because this passage like many others, would tell us that it is, isn't it? And uh, the battle for sexual purity is just as real today as it was 3,000 years ago for David. The battle for sexual purity that David fought, we need to fight. And the battle for sexual purity that he lost, some of us have lost. And some will probably lose in the future. And the need that David had for restoration, many of us will need and maybe need already. This is a real issue for everyone. You see, David was a great man, wasn't he? He was probably the greatest king of Israel. And he was a godly man. He wrote so many of the Psalms. We've heard already today, haven't we, and last night, just uh, how God used David and worked in his life. And the Bible tells us he had a heart after God's heart. I find that an amazing thing. And yet, he failed in a major way. He committed adultery. He stole another man's wife. He murdered the lady's husband to cover up his sin. And you know, I am so glad that this passage is in the Bible. I don't know about you, but to me, it's so encouraging because like David, we fail, don't we, at times. And this passage, I believe, will help us guard against failure, will help us understand how to be restored again. Some years ago, I was involved in a youth work in our church, and uh, I met as a co-leader with me, a guy I'd known for many years, and we went for a pizza on Thursday night to talk about the work. We left the pizza place, we'd made our plans, we got in the car, and he said, Jason, let's just pray for these lads. I was so encouraged, you know, he just, and he poured out his heart for these boys that we're involved in in um, reaching. And on Saturday morning, he left his wife for another woman. And, you know, that's real, isn't it? I have another friend involved in young people's work and uh, just got too friendly with another, uh, a younger person who was already married, had an affair. And it messed up so much. A few years ago I was on beach missions and two very keen girls on the team 
And uh, they were mid-twenties, lovely girls, really keen, really gave of themselves on the fortnight's mission down at Lou. And then just six months later, I met one of the girls and I said, oh, how's your friend doing? She said, oh, she's now living with a married man that she met at work. And we could go on. Um, This whole issue is very, very real. And we need to look at it. And one of the things I want us to look tonight, um, I think you've put all the points up actually. (laughs) So I don't know how we managed that. Uh, But that's where we're going anyway. We'll leave them up. Um, One of the things I want us to look at is the steps to failure. And often the steps to failure, they're not big steps. They're little tiny steps. I used to work in a factory uh, down in Leicester. And uh, my office was right on the front. It was right next to the little reception area. And we we had about a small team, about 20 people. And... uh, And the guys in the company came up with this new sort of exit task. Because in the winter, the car, where we're right around the back of another factory, it's really pitched up. And we had these lights, you know, with the sensors that come on when they detect movement. And all the guys used to gather in reception. And one by one, they used to take it on themselves, yeah, in order. And the task was to get out and into your car without the lights coming on. And, you know, some guys, they used to try and slink round the edge of the buildings. And you'd see them all go. So it was really embarrassing sometimes. I remember one time I'd got foreign visitors in my office. (laughs) And they keep hearing. Suddenly the lights would go on outside and they'd shine through the windows. And this cheer would go up in the lobby, you know. (laughs) And and then it would go quiet for a bit. And, uh, you know, one guy used to slink round the side. Another guy... uh, his idea was to crawl along the floor, get really low, get under the beam. But there was another guy, Ted Hills, he's our mechanical designer, real eccentric. And you know, he did it, and he could do it every night. You know what he used to do? He used to just take little tiny steps. And the motion sensors didn't pick it up, because it didn't think he was really moving. But he would get to his car and the cheer would go up. (laughs) And uh, that's great. You know, often for you and I, failure begins with little steps. I want us to look at those little steps. And the first one is this. You'll find it in verse 1. David was not where he should have been. It says in verse 1, In the spring, at the time when kings go to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. The Ammonite army had fled to the Ammonite city of Reba. And the Israeli army had laid siege on the city. It was a time when David was probably around 50 years old. That's actually quite young. Um, I think anyway. David should have been in the battle. Do you remember that verse? It said, at the time when kings go out to war. Now, there was a time to be in the palace. But there's a time to be in the battle. And when he should have been in the battle, 
He was in the palace. David's top men were there. The army was there. The ark and the priests were there. But David wasn't. David remained in Jerusalem. And David's first step to failure was not to be where he should have been. If David had gone with his men, gone with the army, gone with the ark, none of this would have happened. It's interesting, isn't it, when Uriah came and David said to him, why why didn't you go to your home? Do you remember what Uriah said? Uriah said, how can I go home when the army is in tents and the ark's there? How can I go back to my house? Really, David should have been pricked to that, shouldn't he? And you know, our first lesson in avoiding failure is to be where we should be. And three things, really, just as application. Spend as much time as you can with God's people. Don't miss the prayer meetings. Why, why would we want to miss the prayer meetings? If you're involved in a CU, be at the prayer times. In your church, be at the prayer meetings. You know, if we don't pray together, you know, that, that's the, the, the real basis of fellowship, isn't it? Secondly, spend as much as, you time, as time as you can in God's service. Get involved, do evangelism, serve in your church, be involved in the CU. And thirdly, spend as much time as we can with the Lord. How are you doing in the area of your quiet times? It's great on beach missions, isn't it? But what about when we're home? Roger talked about disciplines. I think, you know, people have reacted against legalism, but actually, they're reacting against disciplines. Legalism's wrong, yeah, but disciplines aren't, are they? We know it's true, don't we? We need to be where we should be. The second step to failure was David was on his own and idle. Verse 2. One evening, or different translation would say, one afternoon... You know, it was late afternoon. David got up from his bed. What on earth was he doing in bed in the afternoon? He's the king. He should be working. And you know, some of us, we get caught up in all kinds of things. He didn't have enough to do. Someone has said this, if you're idle, be not solitary. And if you're solitary, be not idle. Irregular sleep patterns, time on his hands, not enough to do. And the evening is a big danger, isn't it? Our second lesson in avoiding failure is not to be idle, especially when we're on our own, and especially at night time. And we know it's true, don't we? You know, I have less trouble with Jason Duffin when I'm busy than when I'm not. I know that. I have less trouble with wrong dreams and less trouble with wrong thoughts and less trouble with sin. What about you? Is that true for you? How are you doing in this area? Do you have regular bedtimes and getting up times? How do you use your spare time? Are we using it in the battle or on our couches? How much time do you spend on the internet? February 2009... 
The Daily Telegraph reported that young people spend an average of 31 hours a week on the internet. Now, by the time you take out sleep time and eating time and washing time and occupation time, the amount of free time that we actually have, the time that we have to choose what we do with, isn't that great, is it? It's probably about 30 to 40 hours. The time that is ours to choose what we invest it in. How much time is the internet taking? Sad, isn't it? How do you use your evenings? Well, the third step to failure. David wasn't accountable. David was the king. He should have been accountable to God. A king in his kingdom without accountability. We've had in the news, haven't we, about the MPs and the lords, how they've abused their positions. I was interested, I heard on the news, uh, well, I was reading in the newspaper, and um, one of the lords who was being prosecuted, do you know what his biggest defence was? You know, and think about it, the lords are the upholder of the law in our land. And his biggest defence was, well, everyone was doing it. That's tragic, isn't it? Because... They're people who haven't got accountability. They thought they were above the law. So what are the areas that, the big areas where we might not be accountable? I think one of the big areas is probably our computers, the internet. When I was a boy and growing up, uh, pornography basically was only available on the top shelf of the newsagents or in some cinemas, um, particular cinema. And I think the fear of being seen and caught, the sheer visibility of it, the fear of being found out, kept many of us away from it. But now with the internet, in a quiet room with the door shut, the screen turned away so no one else can see, Nobody knows because we're not accountable. I did a little research. One in eight of all internet sites are pornographic. There are over 4.2 million pornographic websites. It's at least that. It's rising all the time. 42% of all internet users view pornographic websites. The average age of the first exposure to internet pornography, this is the average age. Remember, if it's an average, you'll have people below that age. The average age is 11 years old. This is not confined to men. Almost one-third of people who view pornography on the internet are women. In a survey of evangelical Christians... 42% of Christians have said that internet pornography is a problem in their home. This is real, isn't it? And whether we are husbands or wives or parents or singles, we need to be real with the dangers for ourselves and for others. David wasn't accountable. And that lack of accountability meant that he took another step to failure. 
So what do we do? I've put up there a, a website. It's called www.3xwatch.com. Um, this is an accountability software. I tried some of the software that stops you going onto bad sites. It actually stops you going onto good sites because it doesn't know the difference and I couldn't even get onto some engineering sites to do my work. But this software is really, really interesting because what you do is you get a buddy and uh, you just download this software. It's free. There's a version you can pay for, but there's a free version on that website. You'll find it if you look. And you download it. It goes onto your computer and you type in a friend's email address. You need to ask them first. And every two weeks, they get an email and it says, Jason Duffin has visited the following questionable websites. There might not be any listed. Steve Taylor is my buddy. I'm very thankful, Steve. And if I ever remove that software, Steve Taylor gets a message to say, Jason Duffin's removed his accountability software. It's like having someone sitting on your shoulder on the internet. When I was 18, I made a decision not to, to stop watching television. Um, it was simply because I was not disciplined enough with the off switch, especially when I was tired. I don't know about you. But we need to be accountable in all areas of our lives, don't we? This is real. Can I ask you a question? Why wouldn't you want to be accountable on the internet? By the way, if you're parents, I think we need to take this really, really seriously. It is massive. I could spend a lot of time on this. I think we should all be accountable in this area. I think it's such a massive area. I could tell you many illustrations. The fourth step for David was that he looked. Verse 2, it says, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David looked and he noticed. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 says, Have you heard that it was said you should not commit adultery? But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And you know, folks, we live in a world, don't we? where there are so many situations where we will see things, advertising billboards, newspaper adverts, clothing that reveals too much. We will see things. And as we see them, we have a choice. And the choice is this. Do we look away or do we look again? The second look. David looked And then he saw that she was beautiful. He could have just looked away. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a maid. To look away. We can't avoid that first glance. But we have the choice about the second one. And David made the wrong choice. And we shouldn't not pass comment on Bathsheba, should we? Bathsheba should have taken more care to not bathe in a place where she could be viewed, shouldn't she? And ladies and fellas, we need to take care that we do not do things that cause our brothers and sisters to fall into temptation. Men are stimulated often by what they see. Women are often stimulated by touch. 
I think that's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. I think, you know, some Christians, they get very touchy and feely. It's not helpful because we're living in an age where many, many, friend, you know, many of our friends, many people are, are falling in this area. Seven of my Christian friends in a three-year period had marriages that broke down. I look back to the group I grew up in, in an evangelical church, and probably half the marriages of my friends have failed since that time. And this is real. Bathsheba should have taken more care to be covered up. And ladies, you do need to be careful what you wear, lest without intention you cause someone else. I think just because fellas are stimulated by what they see. I think sometimes it's sad when we perhaps go to a Christian wedding. And sometimes it seems to me that you have to go and make that covenant with your eyes that you're just going to look up. Because sometimes it seems at weddings, anything can get worn. And we need to guard and the church is under attack in this area. Listen to what it says in James James chapter 1 verse 14 to 15 says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do you see that? The temptation, we're dragged away by our evil desires. And then it conceives and leads to sin. That's what happened in David. Well, step number five, he didn't listen to the warnings. It says verse three, and David went, sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David's servants, I think, were going as far as they possibly could to warn David. They were saying, look, she's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife, David. He knew the law. He knew God's word, but he wanted his moment of pleasure. He wanted to fulfill his lust. And as far as David was concerned, this wasn't about marriage. This was just about a moment's pleasure. David just was thinking of that pleasure now. Do you know, folks, it's so easy, isn't it, just to get caught up with indulging ourselves. Maybe not just in this area, but in so many areas. And we just want to be indulged at this moment. Maybe we're feeling sorry for ourselves and we're feeling low and sometimes that's because we're perhaps not where we really should be. And so David sends and takes her and he sleeps with her. As far as we can tell, she didn't resist. Uh, She should have called out. The Bible's clear. Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 to 24 says, If a man is sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you should take both of them to the gate of that town and stone them to death. The young woman, she was in a town and she did not scream for help. Maybe she was flattered. Here's the king. We need to beware of flattery, don't we? You know, when people flatter, because it's the beginning, it's the little steps that lead us on. David should have heard the warnings and Bathsheba should have fought. 
They both gave in to their desires. Joseph fled, didn't he, when he was in a similar situation. So what about you and me? Do we listen to warnings? Are we approachable? Do we make ourselves accountable to others and say, look, I want you to warn me. I'm willing to be accountable to someone who's spiritually more mature. Do we recognise the danger areas? And then the sixth step was that David tried to cover up his failures. He explains this in verses 6 to 25. David and Bathsheba have had their night of lust and pleasure. Bathsheba has returned home. And in one sense, nobody knows. But then in verse 5, David receives the message from Bathsheba, I am pregnant. And so first, if you think about it, the first thing was they, they, they lied. They pretended it never happened. It's easy to live a lie, isn't it? And then there was deceit. David went and sent for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And he, what he wanted to do was to get him home so that he would go and sleep with his own wife. And when the baby came, he would be deceived into thinking it was his. And when that didn't work out, then it led to murder. It would be so easy to justify it to himself, wouldn't it? I'm the king. All these people are mine. Why shouldn't I sleep with her? I'll send him back home. Well, let's just make sure he's one of the consequences of war. People get killed in war every day. And so David thinks it's all been dealt with. But look at verse 27. It says here, The thing that David did had displeased the Lord. And maybe, if you're anything like me, we can have sin that is covered up. Perhaps not in this area. Maybe in this area. Maybe this is an area you're struggling in. And God knows and he's not pleased. I had an old car in... You know, my first car cost me £50. And uh, it had a three, the tank was three quarters full when I got it. And that was £30 worth of fuel. <laughs> and it had nine months tax. I, I, and basically, I paid minus money for the car. And, uh, but this car, it looked okay on the outside. But it was rust covered up with filler and then painted. And the only solution with rust on a car is to cut it out. But we need to deal with sin. And you know, some of us will be taking these steps, won't we? And some of us have taken them already. And, and these are areas. And they're just little tiny steps. Well, what were the consequences of Failure. If we can move on to the next slide. Well, the consequences of failure. It cost him his crown. It cost him his fellowship with the Lord. David wrote in Psalm 51 of this time. He said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He never lost his salvation, but he lost the joy of his salvation. Maybe some of us have lost the joy of our salvation. And maybe it's because there's sin. There's things that we've got caught up in. And like David, we need to deal with those. It costs many others, this sin did. Uriah cost him his life. The country was caught up in disturbance. It cost his family. 
some their lives and others their purity. Well, how, can, how are we restored from failure? And how do we guard against failure? So five steps to recovery. Well, God sends Nathan, the prophet, along. And he tells David a story. And you can read the story. David is angry at the injustice in this story. And he says, the person who's done this. It's so easy, isn't it, to see the speck in someone's eye, someone else's eye, and not the beam in our own. David was living in denial. And Nathan says, the man who did this is you. And David confesses his sin. And Nathan says, God has put your sin away from you. Isn't that amazing? We confess our sin, we take it to the cross, and it's, and it's put away. And David's relationship with the Lord is restored, but he still has the consequences of, that, of his sin. God gives him grace in those situations. There are still difficulties ahead, but God is with him to help him through. And amazingly to me, it's through Bathsheba that David has another son who is in the line of Christ. Isn't that amazing? God's able to take our mistakes and when they're brought to the cross, he can take our lives and use them again. David, he was a faithful shepherd. He was a courageous soldier. He was a spiritual leader. He was a wise and successful king. He was a spiritual man with a close walk with God and yet he failed tragically in the area of sexual purity. So what do we do? Well, the first one is this. I'd encourage you to read Psalm 51. David wrote it about this time. We need to see our failure as God sees it. And it's sin that separates from God. And secondly, we need to understand our broken fellowship. It breaks our fellowship with God. It doesn't break our relationship with God. But sin will separate us from the joy of our salvation. To, to put it in context, you, you know, if, if one of my family did something that was just, you know, in, in total rebellion to how our family was, would they still be our family? Yes, they would. They'd still be part of my... Would I still love? Yes, they would. But we won't be able to enjoy the same fellowship. We won't be able to sit and enjoy a meal together until that was put right, would we? It doesn't affect our relationship with God, but it does affect our fellowship. And we need to take it to the cross. David wrote in Psalm 51, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Maybe some of us need to, even tonight, take things to the cross and say, Lord, I've been tampering, I've been dabbling with these areas. And then we trust in Christ's payment. We then trust in the payment that was made for us on the cross. David wrote, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Isn't that amazing? When God washes us, we are clean. And we need to live as sinners saved by grace. David wrote, In Psalm 51, he said, A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. We need broken hearts and desires to live the way that he wants us to live. So for those of us who need to be restored, 
five steps to recovery. And then send seven steps to guard from failure. We've covered most of these, but we, we should be where we should be. Be where you're meant to be. Be serious about this. Be involved. Be busy. Don't be idle. And especially on your own. And especially late at night. Be accountable. Are we willing to be accountable? I think there's something in us that resists that, isn't there? We don't want to be accountable. But are we willing to do that? Because we want to live lives that are pure. We want to stand in times of difficulty. We want to stand in these difficult days when all of this stuff is thrusted on us like it never has been before. Be careful not to cause others to fail. Our dress and our actions, we need to make sure that, you know, without intent, we don't cause others to stumble. Be willing to take advice in those areas. Be on our guard. Look away. I was talking to somebody about this and they said, well, a friend of mine was travelling to work and they put a new billboard up. Advertising underwear. And this friend started taking a different route to work. It was a bit further. But it was, I think that's great, isn't it? We need to be like that. We need to be those who hear and respond to warnings. Are we those who are ready to listen? Ready to say, look, would you really advise me? If I'm flirting, if I'm being flattered, would you tell me? If you think I'm being unwise, would you just put a hand on my shoulder and say, look, Jason, you're not doing the best. Are we willing to do that? And be a runner. Sometimes we just need to get out. Maybe for some of us, that means cutting the TV cable or the internet cable or changing other things in our lives. But we need to be serious with sin. It is a serious passage. I want to close by praying. God has his best things for the few who dare to stand the test. God has his second choice for those who will not have the best. It is not always open sin, the risks, the promise rest. The better often is the foe that keeps us from the best. I want in this short life of mine as much as can be pressed of service true for God and man. Help me to be my best. I want amid, among the victor throng, to have my name confessed and hear my master say at last, well done, you did your best. Give me, O Lord, thy highest choice. Let others take the rest. Their good things have no charm for me, for I enjoy thy best. Heavenly Father, Lord, probably many of us here need to bring some areas of our lives to you. Father, we want to thank you for amazing grace. We want to thank you that you can take a David who fell so far and you can restore him and use him again. Heavenly Father, some of us, we want to be restored. We want to be used. We pray, Lord, would you help us to guard in these areas to be serious with sin. Lord, to be those who would want to have open lives. Would you help us, we pray. For Jesus' sake.
Amen.